Ephesians chapter 3, as we consider essentially Paul's prayer for the church. I want to read the entirety of chapter 3. We've already read Ephesians 2. So you kind of get the idea of where Paul is coming from as we begin this chapter. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I... I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, this morning as we consider Your Word, it is our prayer that You would illuminate our hearts and minds to, to not hear or think what what we want to, but rather what you are seeking to convey by the power of the Spirit through the inspired Word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have indeed given us this Word to teach us and to deepen our faith. And Lord, we we pray that our response to that would be for your glory. So Father, help us to set aside the many things that often distract us in times like these, And Lord, help us to turn our hearts and minds to the Word. May we place ourselves underneath the authority of the Word rather than place the Word underneath the authority of our opinions and our experiences. So Father, have your way in our hearts today, we pray, for your glory and for the good of your people. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
When we consider the church, we often speak of that on terms in many different ways. Sometimes when we talk about the church, we're, we're talking about the church through all generations, everywhere that it exists. And that would be rightfully a right way for us to consider the ideal of the church. We call that the universal church. But most notably, when we speak of the church, and almost, well, the vast majority of the references to the church, even in the New Testament, are not speaking of the universal church. That is a truth. We understand that, conveyed in scriptures. But most notably, when the church is spoken of or mentioned in the New Testament, the reference is always related to the local gathering of God's people, the local expression of the church. And so as many people want to think about the church and we say, well, you know, we want to think in universal terms so that we don't have to connect ourselves, we can't get around the reality that God has, with purpose, ordained the gathering of the local church. That yes, while the church abroad, universal, of all believers of all times, from every place, is a glorious truth. Uh, the majority of Scripture is pointed out to the, the way in which God has ordained us to express and grow our Christian lives, and that is through the local gathering of the church, a place where we know one another, we speak to one another, we encourage one another, we hold each other accountable to the truths that we profess. And that's what Paul has in mind when he's speaking to the church. In fact, he's writing to a particular group of believers in a particular place, of which he could name them. They were, as we would call it, members of this particular body. And so his exhortation is first and foremost in its original context to those people, that audience, but by the power of the Spirit, inspired not only for those who lived in Ephesus in the first century, but for all local churches subsequent to that time. Now, when we think of the church, we also often think in very pragmatic terms. Now, let me underline what I'm getting ready to say by, say by saying that I understand that we must be pragmatic. We must be practical in, in how we do things, tangible plans and those kinds of things. So I'm not dismissing that reality. But often when we think of the church, we think in purely pragmatic terms. So when people start talking about the church, it's, it's usually about uh, a certain aspects. You know, well, what, what kind of music does the church have? What, what's the preaching like, the style? Uh, what kind of things do you do? You do? Uh, what's your youth ministry like? What's your children's ministry like? These are all pragmatic, not unimportant, but pragmatic things, practical outworkings of how we have determined in our particular culture and generation to do church. But we also think of church in terms of practical things like, you know, how do we get more people how do we attract or draw or, or see the church grow in number? And in fact, we do that often to the point that while we know in our hearts that our goal or our job is not just to attract people, we want to do that, we want to see people come in, but we often begin to pragmatically design the church based on that alone. So it's all about, well, if we do this kind of music, maybe we'll draw this particular crowd, or if we stop doing these things, maybe... Some other people might join in. And again, I'm not saying that we can get around these kinds of questions, but this is often taken to extreme because if we, if we pursue purely pragmatism, we will go down that route to what works. The outcome justifies the means. That is, so we'll 
you know, maybe some churches, and I'm not trying to pick on any particular churches, we'll, we'll put in, you know, the flashing lights and maybe the smoke and maybe some fire shooting off the stage uh, at times at the right moments to, to get some attention. And maybe out of good motives for some people that, that do those kinds of things. But it becomes about being sensational. This is a part of the culture in which we live in, and we are, whether we want to or not, products of the culture in which we are raised in, particular in our context. We can't set that aside. We must be aware of that and not allow that to pragmatically drive us when it comes to the church. And one of the ways we, we, we battle that reality is to turn objectively to the authority which God has given us to the Word of God to guide us and direct us, and to challenge our own feelings, to challenge our own ways of thinking, to place ourselves, as I prayed, underneath the authority of the Scripture. So here in Ephesians, and you're probably somewhat familiar with the book of Ephesians. Most people think of Ephesians, you think of the armor of God in chapter 6, or maybe what we looked at a couple weeks ago in chapter 2, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. These are the well-known passages. Uh, But as Paul is working through this, speaking to the church, he he arrives at this particular chapter that contains a prayer. And this prayer is is one of those ones that I've encouraged many people, if you want to know how to pray, uh, one of the good things that we can do, we don't know what to pray, is to go and pray the Word of God. So if you don't know what to pray, here's a prayer for you to model your prayers after. But what happens a lot of times when we read these kind of things, it just, it flows. It, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's poetic. It's, you know, it just sounds good. But there's a lot in it that we, we don't ever say, well, what does that mean? What is it that Paul is trying to convey as he voices this prayer, as he writes it to a real group of people living in a real time, uh, in the reality of the gospel going forth? What does it mean? Because what it meant when Paul wrote it to that original audience in Ephesus is exactly what it means for us right here in 21st century America today. Now, there might be some practical differences, but we can't get to those if we, if we skip over what does it mean. And so I want to attempt this morning to, to point out a few things. It's a lot of text, I realize, and we're not going to hit everything in it. But there's several things that I want to point out to us in light of the idea of a prayer for the church. Well, first thing we need to recognize as Paul begins this particular chapter chapter is where he ends the previous chapter because he basically gives us a portrait of the church. And notice how Paul's portrait of the church doesn't look a lot like the portrait that we often communicate in our day and in our culture. So look again with me in chapter 2, which Shane read earlier, uh, just starting with verse 19. He says, so, so then you, and, and, and take note that the you in all these texts is plural. It's about the corporate body. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is Paul's portrait. He paints a picture of the church. You say, oh, Paul, what what is the church? Well, there you have it. It's not about the music. It's not about the style of preaching. It's not about the time you meet. It's not about any of those things we often talk about when somebody says, what's your church like? 
The portrait we paint is very culturally and pragmatic driven, but what Paul reaches underneath all that to the, what we better not miss, regardless of what practical outworkings we determine to be true in our particular church, and that is that the church is a body of believers, corporately, not individually, corporately brought together and are being built together by God into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Now, I realize the significance and the, why we must talk about how God takes up residence in all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. The Spirit of God lives within us individually. But Paul's be going beyond that right now. He's talking about the corporate reality. So in, on the individual basis, don't lose that, but don't stop there and recognize that, yeah, there is significance in the corporate body of believers that is being built together by God. You understand that word right there, that phrase right there requires there to be more than one, but being built together, joined together, being built into a holy temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I admit I don't fully understand the distinctions about this, but I know that while the Spirit of God dwells in me, therefore I can say that God will never leave me nor forsake me. In fact, if there wasn't another believer in this place right now, I can say that God is present. Why? Because His Spirit dwells in me. But there's also a distinct way in which Paul expresses the ideal of the corporate body coming together and the the Spirit of God dwelling in the midst of the corporate body. Now again, I don't understand that. I just, I know it to be a truth because it's what Paul says. But this is the portrait that he paints. And then he begins in chapter 3, take note of verse 1, for this reason, or on this account, or on this basis. And then note again in verse 14, he makes the same statement, for this reason. Now what happens here is Paul begins his thought for this reason and then he immediately chases a rabbit. He gets sidetracked for just a moment. Now fortunately for, for you, unlike me, Paul's rabbit trail has an extreme significant purpose. And it's not just, oh, well, let's talk about, oh, wait a second, I'm off track, let me get back on it. But he says, for this reason, then he immediately then begins to address something that for whatever reason, the Spirit of God inspires him to lay this foundation before getting to the prayer that he's going to voice or write on behalf of the Ephesians. But in the midst of this sidetrack, there's a couple things that happen. And it's important for the life of the church. He talks about what we would term as inspiration. In particular, the inspiration of Scripture. Now, Paul doesn't necessarily recognize, hey guys, what I'm writing to you is going to be put together in a canon of books that people are going to read for generations. Now, that's not necessary for us to affirm whether or not Paul cognitively knew he was writing Scripture. But nevertheless, he knew what he was writing was significant and it was from the Lord. And it was by the grace of God that this was given. So he speaks about a mystery that was made known to him by revelation. So God reveals to Paul, whom we understand to be an apostle. He reveals truth to him, truth that had not yet been revealed. It was always true, but it was talked about in the term of mystery. A biblical mystery, uh, as we talk about that term, is not an American mystery not a mystery novel. It's something that's always been true, but it hasn't been fully disclosed 
But in Christ, it was now being revealed by the Spirit of God to God's people. Now, that's not a, necessarily a moment in time, like nobody understands it, nobody knows it, and then boom, everybody gets it. That's not what it means. It just means that now that Christ has come and, and Christ has revealed to us who God is in the flesh, He's lived out the glory of God, now in that revelation, this mystery, things that weren't understood are now coming clear. And in Paul, God revealed some of these things. And then Paul says that as they were revealed to him, he says, as I have written briefly, verse 4 now, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now hear what Paul's saying, put it in my language. God is, has revealed truth to me that has not been previously understood. And I'm taking this truth and I'm writing it down so that you will read it, and here's the best part, and you will be able to understand. You will perceive. So while Paul might not have understood what he was doing, he understood what God was doing in and through him as he sought to encourage and speak to the church, to other believers. That this, this revelation, the mystery revealed in Christ, revealed to him would be written down, would be broadcast in that manner, and that people would read it, and they would begin to understand this mystery. Now, the mystery is often used in the Bible and by Paul in, in a variety of ways. Here he is talking about particularly this mystery, that previously God had primarily worked through a particular people, the Jews. Now, it wasn't that God didn't save Gentiles in that time. It did happen. Go back and read the Old Testament. There were Gentiles who believed but nevertheless, in Christ, the reality of it, that it was no longer God was working primarily through one people, but he was now expanding it to the nations in the person of Christ, and there was no one before the other. The Jew and Gentile were brought together into one body. So all the nations, this was the mystery of being revealed, that God's word would indeed go forth to the nations, and that people from among every nation, regardless of creed or color, would hear the gospel, many would respond and be reconciled with their Savior and be in Christ, a part of the body, the universal church that then is expressed in local context. This is the foundation for what Paul's getting ready to say about what he's praying for them. This is crucial that we understand what's going on here. But he says all this Ultimately, then he talks about preaching this. And he says this gospel, the gospel that, that it is revealed through Christ, this mystery, he says in verse 6, is, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, foundational, that it is the proclamation of this message that will be the means by which this promise would come about. Of this gospel... Paul was made a minister by God's grace, and it was this gospel that he, he says in verse 8, was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, notice the purpose, and ultimately where he's going with this. He's saying all this as an aside, but foundational for his point. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light... For everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So to preach the truth, and I don't think the and there is an additional, but rather a further explanation of what that means. To preach the, the truth of the unsearchable riches of Christ, that is 
to bring to light through the preaching of these unsearchable riches to bring to light for everyone what the plan of the mystery. So now, not only Paul being, uh, God revealing to Paul, Paul writing it down and people reading, but the word being proclaimed and then everyone having the possibility of understanding this great truth about the riches and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But then it comes to his ultimate point where he's going with this. This isn't about you individually or me individually. While that could be applied in particular ways, that's not where Paul is going with this. He says then in verse 10, so that, here's my purpose for all this revelation given to me, written down so that you can read, you can perceive it, so we can preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ, so that through the church. You get that? Now, I believe with all my heart, while you might disagree with me, that what Paul intends here, and greater context is important, is not just the universal church, but through local expressions of like people he's writing to in Ephesus, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. That through the church, this is God's design, and this is Paul's heart because he was on mission for God to preach the gospel, to make known that which would not otherwise be known so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. And then notice the next phrase. To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, let's stop there for a second and say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Why is the church supposed to make the manifold wisdom of God known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Now, if we take those phrases separately, rulers and authorities, we might immediately think about governments and those kinds of things, right? But now we add that last phrase, in heavenly places, now we suddenly take that to a, a higher spiritual plane, like demonic power and that kind of thing. So how are we to understand and why is the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Well, just to help with that, let's... let's Think about what Paul has said about this already. In, in chapter 1, verse 21, he writes this, uh, or beginning in 20, that he worked in Christ, pick it up in the middle of a thought, but that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then in chapter 2, while this is not specifically related, but I think you'll see it, Paul talks about how we were walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Most certainly, I think in context, we could assume that what Paul is referencing there is a, a rule and authority in heavenly places, the prince of the power of the air. But then he goes on in chapter 2 to say that we were raised, that God raised us up with him, that is Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that we as believers are now placed far above all rule and authorities and powers and dominion in Christ, spiritually speaking. Obviously, we're still, you're sitting in pews in, in a low place right now, but you understand the point. But I think in regards to what Paul is referencing here is the making the manifold wisdom of God made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places isn't about us as a church, you like run around talking, trying to look for a demon, and be like, hey, you, let me tell you something. And making it known to like the Invisible demons. I don't think it's without that concept, but I think, again, if we read the Bible, we find that there's this, there's this 
distinction that's hard for us to see that when we're looking at real tangible things that if we could peel back the curtain, there's spiritual power behind that. We, we read those kinds of things in like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when there's prophecies against the king of Tyre. But then suddenly as the prophet is speaking to a man, a ruler, all of a sudden it sounds like he's talking to a spiritual being. And, and the thing about it is behind all activity in this world, whether known or unknown by the person itself, Satan has a plan and he is operating through this world, this present evil age. So when Paul says that we might make the wisdom of God known, the manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, I think he has the idea that we as the church, as an individual local church, have as our responsibility to declare the gospel even if it isn't drawing people to Christ particularly. Now don't misunderstand me. Yes, it is our job to proclaim the gospel, that people hear the gospel, that God opens their hearts, that they respond to repentance of faith and come to Christ. That's, yeah, we want that to be happening. That's our responsibility. But even if that doesn't happen, the church's responsibility is to be a light to the world, to the rulers and authorities, whether you think about that in government terms, but in the powers that stand behind the culture of this world, the present evil age, we are declaring the manifold wisdom of God because that's what God has put us here to do. It's not an outcome-based thing. God's got that taken care of. It's about a responsibility and a privilege of the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God, period. And there's glory in that. There's joy in that. There's purpose in that. This is ultimately the purpose of the church, according to Paul. That is the church, particular, that's being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. But now, let's consider the power of the church. Notice what Paul says then in Let's pick up in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now note this. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now this is a verse that you might read quickly over, but if you read quickly over this, you will miss Paul's point. For what he's about to pray. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Now we read that our sentimentality makes us think of something like Paul's in prison and he is when he's writing uh, the letter to the Ephesians. He's been persecuted. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And man, that's just really bad. I feel really bad for Paul. It's just overwhelming. I feel bad. That's the way we often think about this kind of thing. So don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. That's not what Paul is saying there. And we will see that in the rest of what he prays for them. His ideal is that don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. The focus then is the fact that, yes, he is suffering. Why is he suffering? Because he's a minister of the gospel in light of the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that operate through means in this world. And so he's telling the church... This is your responsibility to, to declare the manifold wisdom of God to those rulers and authorities, to make it known, and there will be consequences. And as you look at me and you think, well, look what happened to Paul, you might lose heart. You might lose boldness. You might lose confidence. You might sit back and just try to be the nice guy. Keep your head down, not create too much 
chaos around you, maybe they'll just overlook you. But then look at that last phrase. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, what's their glory? And what is glory? Well, obviously, the, the which is your glory is attached to a very uh, a word that we don't want it to be attached to, and it's attached to suffering. Glory is a term that we think about, we, we, we hear it all the time, the glory of God. And we don't ever stop and think, what does that mean? Is that about a glow? Is that about some, you know, somebody who displays the glory of God, we expect them to see a light over their head? What is glory? And, and there's many different ways in which we can think about that term as expressed throughout Scripture in different contexts. But I think a good way for us to think about it here in a broad way is to say this, that glory means the demonstration of God's power. Now that happens in so many different ways. But I think this is a helpful definition, the demonstration of God's power. So what Paul then says is that their power, the power of the church, rest in this idea, suffering. Well, let's just stop here, right? Let's just, let's don't go any further. Don't lose heart, church. When you see that I'm suffering because of the gospel, because I'm going through this for you to, to be a display of the demonstration of God's power because that in itself is your ability to demonstrate the very power of God. And then he prays for this reason. I bow my knees before the Father. So what is Paul praying for them? He's praying for them that they would have the strength to stand for the gospel no matter what. This isn't just some random poetic prayer. He says to them, that according to the riches of God's glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That the power of God would now strengthen them for what? Is it just as a general idea to be strong physically, emotionally, psychologically? I mean, all those things are probably a part of it in some sense, but no, that's not what he's praying. He's praying in light of this statement, and he makes them not lose heart when they're looking at his suffering. I'm praying that God would strengthen you when the difficulties come along you, because guess what, Ephesians? Guess what, Mariposians? When standing for the gospel, it's going to be at a cost. I know that we have lived in a generation and a place that we consider blessed, that we've not had to face what many people for centuries, and even in this century, in this moment, this very day around the world, have to suffer for the sake of Christ. We don't gather here this morning in fear of any sense. We're very comfortable. Air conditioning, padded pews, not worried about somebody knocking on the back of the door and who it might be. This is where we, what we have experienced. But don't let our experience determine truth and reality of what Scripture is saying to us, because this still is true, even if we dwell in the, in, in the time of comfort and complacency, is that suffering is God's design for the display of His power among, among His people, His church. And so Paul prays for the Ephesian church and for you, church, that you'd be strengthened with power through 
through God's Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, stop there again, because Paul's not talking to a bunch of people that, that, that are lost. He's talking about people whom he would say elsewhere that Christ does live in them, but yet he still prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And so here he's talking about not that initial presence of God in salvation, because yes, God is with us always, will never forsake us, but this dwelling ideal has, is connected to the reality, the tangible reality of the pressures that may come upon you for the sake of the gospel. And that at those times, your mind dwelling upon Christ is going to matter. That Christ would so overwhelm your life and your thoughts and your feelings that you will be faithful. And he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. There's again another foundation. Rooted and grounded in, love, in, in the love of God displayed in Christ. That is the gospel. That's got to be in place, church. That's not something we turn to when the difficulties come, but we, we live there, so when the difficulties come, it's not in question. You see, what we've missed in our comfort is what we're supposed to be preparing for. Now I realize many a Christian, in America at least, have lived and died without ever seeing real difficult days for the gospel. But we are called to be preparing for that very thing, to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, displayed in the gospel, preparing for how we are to continue our job as the church, our, our privilege as the church, if things were to change, because eventually they will. And I think maybe in our present culture, we've begun to sense that real possibility I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying it will. We pray for revival in our country. We pray that, that things changed and from the direction we feel like they're sometimes going. But nevertheless, we're preparing by being rooted and grounded in love, in the love of Christ displayed in the gospel. And doing so, this is Paul's prayer, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, again, kind of a fluid, it's one of those statements you kind of go, isn't that just nice? To know the breadth and the height, the, the length and the height and the depth. And, oh, it's important. But it's important because what, what Paul is praying for the church here is that you would comprehend, you would fully understand, you would be able to perceive with all the saints, there's the reference to beyond the local church, this reality that surpasses knowledge. Now, understand this. The knowledge of the Lord is foundational and important. Us knowing truth matters. So this is not just an experiential and feeling process of being a Christian. We are to be, in our turn, somewhat academic. We are to learn things and know things. That's, that's a beginning process. We learn stuff, truth, from the Word of God. We get it put in our hearts and our heads over and over so it's, it's there. It's not questionable. So we need to know stuff, but it isn't just about knowing stuff and sitting around in and, and theological debates and, and, and apologetics, which are all good things, but it's more than that. Paul says that you, church, I'm praying for you so that when the, the real potential for persecution arrives at your door, you will be able to stand and you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge because you are 
prepared for what you've been called to be as the church. And then Paul <clears throat> addresses uh, the prize of the church. Part of it is not so much of a prize in our terminology. <clears throat> that is, that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, that's one of those phrases, it sounds good, but you have to stop and say, well, what, what is Paul trying to say? Well, I'm not certain that I fully comprehend it, but I, I, this is what I do know. Paul is very clear about throughout Scripture, New Testament is replete with this truth, that when you came to Christ, you didn't just get a part of God, you got all of Him. You didn't just get a little bit of His grace, you got all of His grace. If you didn't get all of it, you're in trouble. You got all of it. There's nothing more to get. God is fully gracious to you in saving you from your sins and from yourself in Christ. So if that is true, and if Paul believes that, and I think he categorically does, what does he mean then when you say that you might be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, again, attached to the context, Paul is saying, I believe that there is an experience that comes for the church in suffering that affords them an opportunity to display, to put on display or demonstrate the power of God that they will not be afforded in any other way. And that in such, we, we comprehend the fullness of God. And you can't, you can't disconnect suffering from the fullness of God. Why? Well, the gospel. <laughs> the gospel was the greatest display of God's power and love in suffering. In fact, if we go and read Paul elsewhere, there's a passage in Colossians chapter 1. Um, just reading this one verse, it's connected with this idea of suffering as well. And here he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And that's one of those passages you kind of go, wait, wait. If you stop, you go, wait, Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Wait. What was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Was Christ lacking something? That, that sounds like heresy. And if it's saying what we might initially think, that most certainly would be heresy. But this is what Paul was ultimately saying to the Colossian church there. Is that he, as a believer, empowered by God, called by God to live the gospel, he was then facing suffering for that sake. And now... The one thing that you and I and the people he was writing to couldn't experience, they couldn't personally and tangibly stand before the cross and see Christ suffering for them. That had already happened. He was dead and raised and ascended. Many of those whom he was preaching were not present. They maybe hadn't even heard about it. But what Paul was saying, but I, as I live for the gospel and I suffer for the gospel, I become a display of that very same suffering that you can now tangibly see and experience. This is what he means by filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. The only thing that was lacking in it was that it was done in a point of history and that you and I can't go see that today. But we can see the same reality in the suffering of God's people. And he says that he was doing so for the sake of the body that is his church. So we, church, have the opportunity to put on display the very power of God, His glory, which is our glory, when God affords us the opportunities to suffer for Him. And that's true on an individual basis or a corporate 
basis, but Paul's focus is the church here. So that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I don't know how many of us are going to go home and pray, God, please let me suffer so I can be filled with the fullness of God. Because here's the deal. I'm a coward. I've told you that many times. But folks, don't get the idea from sensational conveyances of grand stories of the saints of past. They were human beings. And right now, probably around this world, there are some, some Christians who might be gathered somewhere in a place that they could pay their very life for gathering. But they're not gathered there cocky and arrogant. They're probably sitting maybe on a floor in a dirty room singing some songs, maybe quietly, and they're scared. They're human beings. But their fear doesn't overcome their faithfulness to the gospel because they've been strengthened in their inner spirit by the power of God. They're rooted and grounded in love. And they're prepared to answer God's call even for their life. That's been happening and probably still is happening to this day in Afghanistan. Scared believers who want to live. Who want to live. They don't want to die. But there's something more important than life here. And that is that they stand for the gospel at all costs. This is the power and the prize of the church. The prize of the church is to be filled with the fullness of God and have the opportunity to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the world around us. Then notice the final statement that Paul makes. Now to him who is able. This isn't about your personality, your boldness, and all that kind of stuff. This is about God's glory and God's power at work in you. To do in you and for you what you could never do for yourself. Now to him who is able. To do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. That's a good thing because I'm not going home today and asking for any suffering. Or even mild hardship. According to the power at work within us. And guys, while that is true for me, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the church. God's power at work within the us who's built together as a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It was true in first century Ephesus. And they faced some difficulties. In fact, I believe that one of their elders was exiled to an island called Patmos and then returned later. And I'm sure there's stories that we don't even know of believers who stood faithful for the gospel and paid a great cost. And it's true even today for you, believer, as a member of the church. Not just the universal church, but the particular expression of the local church. This is our calling. And we must remind ourselves not of our circumstances or experience, but of the truth of the gospel, the truth that we read that this is our glory. This is our opportunity to to put on display the power of God because we exist for one purpose alone, individually 
and corporately as the church, and that is for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your grace, for Your Word. And I pray that it will serve as an encouragement to us, an exhortation, a conviction if needed, wherever we may find ourselves. But Lord, our greatest desire, both individually, I pray, and corporately as any single body of believers, would be that your power would be on display in our midst. Father, I can't speak for everyone in this room, but it's not my desire to invite suffering into my life. But it is my desire to arrive at that point where I might be able to say, if my demise means your glory, then bring it on. May we so deeply love the gospel that that would be our attitude. I know, Lord, I'm not there, but I want to be there. And I pray for this church that you will drive that desire in their hearts as well. That we may all put on display the demonstration of your power at work in the midst of this present evil age, no matter what may come. So have your way in our hearts, Lord, by this word, and we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.